I've got a 37 foot class A motorhome and it's awesome, but it's huge, which means there are definitely some places my family and I just can't go in it. So every time I see an SUV with gobs of ground clearance and a tapui tent on the roof, I'm kind of jealous. Once you see one of these tents opened up, you'll understand. They let you bring your sleeping pad with you without ever having to worry about the ground and weather conditions. Plus, they look badass. Of course, to test their product, it means founder Evan Currid needs to get out in the wild and head to some of the coolest outdoor shows and festivals. And they host Tapui Fest. Not a bad way to run a business, huh? Listen in as Evan tells us where the idea came from and how they've built it into one of the largest rooftop tent brands in North America. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Evan, you started Tapui Tents, which make the rooftop tents that mount onto almost any car and kind of like fold open. And it's it's one of those things that when you see it, it's instantly recognizable. And up until recently, as far as I know, you guys were kind of the only ones doing something like that. But um, before we dive into the hows and the whys, maybe you could tell us where the idea came from, how you got the concept, and why you decided to do something like this. Sure, absolutely, yeah. Um, my wife and I, well, my wife is Venezuelan, and, and Tapui is actually uh, a Venezuelan word, or, uh, you know, comes from the indigenous people, the Pimus, and it's uh, essentially a, a mesa, what we would call a mesa, so uh, a flat top, you know, steep-sided mountain. Um, and her and I were traveling down in Venezuela about, boy, almost 10 years ago now, and we were out on the east coast, close to the border of Brazil, uh, and on a little surf excursion, and that's very formidable. Uh, terrain out there. I mean, it, uh, you've got everything from jungles to, you know, snakes to monsoons that kind of roll through there. And, um, you know, we looked over to campground and we noticed that everybody was up on these, uh, tents. They were more rustic. They were more like plywood, uh, with kind of conventional ground tent styles, uh, stapled to the top of them, but literally everybody in the campground had them. And I was just fascinated. It looked like a the little Ewok village. And they were up on um, cars so we or of, up on something else? Yeah, they were up on SUVs, you know, uh, cars, Jeeps, that kind of thing. Uh, so, and there'd be about 300 of them. I mean, 90% of the campground uh, was rooftop tents, you know. Um, there was, in fact, a brand, a predominant brand in Venezuela called Anaconda. And um, so we, we took a bunch of pictures of them. We reached out to the company and uh, thought, hey, this is great. You know, the U.S. market's going to love this. Uh, they come with a mattress. You're sleeping up off the ground. Uh, and started working with them to try to import rooftop tents into the U.S. But uh, Venezuela is uh, a third world country. It has its own, certainly, currently right now, unfortunately, it's going through a lot of civil unrest. 
Uh, but even back then, it was very difficult to work with factories with currency and black markets and strikes at the port and things like that. So uh, very quickly, we realized that wasn't the foundation that we would uh, be able to build a successful business off of. So did you ever bring we, any of those in or did it never even get that far? No, we did. We did, in fact. And, um, you know, they were they were great. And, you know, it wasn't just that it was difficult to work with uh, Venezuela, but it was also that the tents themselves, when we got close to them and, and you know, we tried to introduce them sort of on a trial basis here, and this is like 2007, um, they were a little too rustic. Uh, they were all handmade in a, in a factory that we toured um, just outside of Caracas, and it uh, we just thought the American consumer wants something that's a little bit more uh, refined, something that's consistent, you know, from product to product to product, you know, holes are drilled on the same spot, brackets are the same length, things like that. So um, that was another reason we decided, you know, it's probably better for us to, you know, build a foundation with our own tents uh, and our own brands rather than just being an importer of record, you know, for rooftop tents. Right on. And then, um, so you decided to do it yourself at that point, right? Yeah, we uh, we did. We, we kind of started doing some research, um, you know, found that these tents were actually used in Australia, out in the outback, in South Africa quite a bit. That same um, brand or another brand? Uh, different brands. Uh, their own, you know, unique brands. Uh, uh, ARB was a big brand in uh, Australia. And um, so we sort of looked at what was working, what wasn't. Uh, a lot of the tent brands at that point were using wood bases. Um, but there was a shift to go into something that was lighter weight. Uh, so after we kind of put the best of the best together and the features that we thought the U.S. market would want, um, we went and tried to actually manufacture them here in the U.S. And we were working with um, somebody down in L.A. And we were working with a metal shop here in Watsonville. And we were working with an upholstery guy to try to do some industrial sewing. But it, uh, after about six months, we realized that it was cost prohibitive to really scale the business. Um, we needed to, to build in better margins. So that's when we went overseas and went through many manufacturers, prototyping, trying to get a you know, a good design that would be reliable and uh, cost-effective to build. And that's when we started bringing in uh, tents from overseas. And that was probably 2010 when we officially launched under the name Tapui with our first batch of tents. Uh, we had two models and, you know, we had them all in a little extra space storage container off of about a block from my house. <laughs> and we'd uh, hung a shelf up and called it an office, you know. <laughs> So the from 2007 when you saw these and kind of when you first saw them, how quickly did you think, hey, this is a business opportunity, like right away? Or did you go home and kind of go back to normal, whatever you were doing at the time for a while? Uh, no, it was, it was pretty much right away. I, I was fascinated and maybe it's the, the little boy in me that came out and was just like, oh, this is so cool. It's like a tree house on wheels. And I just, you know, I couldn't stop thinking about them. It, uh Coincidentally, it was also the downturn here in the U.S. I mean, that was sort of the collapse of Lehman's and everything else started just crumbling. Um, were you involved with that? Yeah, what was, were you doing before you started this? Well, I was in construction management, uh, and my wife was also in construction management for, um, you know, a big general contractor here in the Bay Area. And unfortunately, she was on a big project uh, in Sunnyvale, and they, you know, it, uh, the ground fell from under them, you know, so they... The project stopped, the funding stopped, there was lots of layoffs, she was included in that, and it sort of, as uh, upsetting as that was, provided 
the opportunity for us to turn around and say, okay, I guess, you know, let's do this. Why not? You know, this is the time to do it. We're not waking up and going to work every morning, you know? Yeah. So you went back from this trip and started trying to import. And then how long did it take before you guys realized you weren't going to be able to import them and that wasn't going to work and you started designing your own? Um, I mean, that was probably, I would say, six to nine months of working with that. And we, we, we did get them in there. We went out and product tested them. Um, you know, uh, my wife flew back down and toured the factory and was sort of working with them to make uh, a U.S. website that would hopefully, you know, translate all the information you would need on rooftop tents. But they weren't very accommodating at that time. So we were running into a lot of struggles, a lot of hurdles that uh, made us realize that we were going to put a lot of sweat equity into this and we would be building somebody else's brand. And that right. didn't seem, you know, like there was a, the proper reward right. you know, for that. So then what was it like mid 2008 or end of 2008 when you guys decided yeah. to start kind of design your own and go that route? Yeah. In fact, um, that's how I met the other partner who's uh, involved with this now, Bernard. Um, my wife and I were going out to a, a place here just south of Santa Cruz to get surfboard repaired. And uh, I had one of the anacondas on my roof and, you know, he saw his little woodworking shop there. He was making little chairs and stuff like that. And while Gabby was looking at surfboards, I went in and asked him how business was. And, you know, he kind of looked up and said, could be better. So I said, hey, do you want an opportunity to make some bases, some wood bases? Because at that point, we were still going to make them out of wood bases. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we prototyped a bunch and we worked with that. But then, like I said, um, we together kind of decided this wasn't going to work uh, it was just cost prohibitive. So he was still very interested in staying with the team and he thought, yeah, this is a great opportunity. So he's still with us today. So the three of us sort of, you know, joined forces and, and launched a GUI. Right on. So it sounds like, you know, if you're starting that in late 2008 and you spent some time trying to make it in the U.S. and prototyping with wood and all that and then went overseas, like once you guys made the decision to go overseas, it seems like it moved really quickly to get a finished product out by 2010. Um, it, t- it took us about a year, I would say, because we, um, the first prototypes, because everything has to, had to be shipped over on a container. So if we were getting a prototype or two prototypes from, you know, say manufacturer X, they'd come over and there'd be a bunch of problems. We'd say, no, this isn't right. You got to tweak this, change that. And then, you know, they'd make those things and put them back on a boat. So you're, you know, you're a month or two before you see the next prototype. Um, right. And in fact, the first few manufacturers we worked with, they just, they were cutting corners. The stuff was just, it was, it just felt cheap. It just didn't feel like it was going to hold up to the overlanding that we had seen people use them, you know, in Venezuela or what we had envisioned using them for here in the U.S. So um, it took us a while to land on somebody who really understood, you know, why things needed to be redundant, reliable, you know. Right. So the first so that, couple ones, like the errors, was the things that came in on these prototypes that you didn't like. Was it because uh, they designed a spec, but maybe you guys didn't realize until you saw something physical, like it was in a, kind of a something left out from the design on your end, or was it just crappy materials and lack of attention to detail on their end, or combination? I think it's probably a combination. I think lack of attention to detail is probably the biggest thing. You know, they just want to push stuff out, and that that sort of uh, attention to detail doesn't work. You know, if you want a product that's going to last and you know hold up to 
kind of conditions you want to put it in. You need somebody who's looking at every stitch that's seam sealing every, you know, seam in the tent that, you know, rivets aren't loose, screws are, you know, properly torqued and things like that. So, um, so it was that sort of learning curve because I think a lot of these folks were used to doing either soft goods or hard goods. But if you look at a rooftop tent, it's sort of the combination of both. I mean, the, the tent, the base of it is metalworks and the canopy is industrial sewing. So trying to get a shop that actually does both very well was sort of a challenge. Right. And did you need one shop to be able to create the whole thing or could you not put, let one person do the subframe and the other person do the tent and then have them assembled? Um, we, you could, we could have tried that. I mean, we, for efficiencies, we felt it would be better to have them done in one spot because moving stuff around is difficult, uh, especially large bulky things. Um, plus, I mean, there are certain components that we source somewhere else, like the ladder, for example. So we would have the ladder shipped over to wherever the canopy was being sewn and the base assembly. And so there were some items that we could do that, but big bulky bases were easier done in one spot. Right. The, um, the manufacturer that you ended up with, like, was there some magic word or did you learn a way of, how did you effectively communicate to, uh, an Asian manufacturer, the robustness that your product needed to have? Um, well, it was, it actually took going over there. Um, to be honest with you. And, and even when we launched the rugged eyes series about, three or so years ago, it was hard to get them to understand the concept of why, why would you want to add diamond plate to this? Why do you want the fabric to be heavier? And um, they don't camp in them. And that's sort of a, there's a communication gap right there because, you know, if you can get them to camp in it, then they start to understand why these sort of components are these beefier hinges or, you know, adding an extra bolt here means something. Um, so, we had to kind of go over there and, and kind of paint the picture for them. So they had to live vicariously to our adventures and our experiences in these tents. And, and it, and it did work. Um, but that is sort of a, if we could almost bring them over and say, okay, we're going to do a, a week long field trip and we're going to use the tents that you build. I think they would leave with a better understanding of yeah. why certain items are more compliant. Yeah. Why not do that? Or why didn't you do that? Well, it, you know, resources um you know you got, at this point we would probably have better means to do that but you gotta understand that at that stage you know especially in our infancy you know we were selling six seven tenths a month when we launched in 2010 um i mean we started this with thirty three thousand dollars you know there was not a lot of money there was you know my wife was unemployed i was still working full-time and you know to try to say hey we're going to take a whole manufacturer out on a field trip that's just not possible. We're kind of bootstrapping it, you know? Right. Okay. Well, that actually leads nicely into my next question. Then we'll go back to some of the manufacturing stuff. The, uh, yeah. So $33,000, where did that come from? Personal savings or? Yeah. Yeah. We just had some savings. Um, you know, we were recently married. Um, so, you know, we had this kind of idea, are we <laughs> going to buy a house or are we going to start this company? <laughs> and, uh, it, it just felt like this company was, it had so much, you know, upside potential that that seemed like a better option for us. So we decided to put the money into, you know, getting, getting started launching it. And it was a small amount of money when you think about it. I mean, we built out our website, 
on an iMac. Um, we sold our first tent on eBay at uh, Thanksgiving of 2010. I mean, it was really sort of, um, you know, we were stretching every dollar, if you will. Yeah, that's awesome. So, like, I'm kind of blown away that you could start something like this on such a small amount of money. How do you, I mean, how do you get a contract manufacturer overseas to build it? Because, I mean, with $33,000, I imagine you were only building a couple at a time. Yeah, well, they didn't know that that's, we only had $33,000. I think it's a, a lot of, um, you know, when you're communicating and you communicate your vision and, you know, you have the confidence of, of where your brand is going, um, they feel that. And they didn't look into, you know, is this an established company? I mean, they just they just felt, hey, these guys know exactly what they want. They know where they're going. They're going to go there one way or the other. And if I want to be on board, I'm going to have to play with, you know, with these guys. So, um, yeah, and, and I think all along, especially in those early years, we always tried to um, provide services and provide the experience of dealing with a company, a more well-established company than, you know, essentially a team of three could provide. Uh, so I think that also helped quite a bit. So how did you do the, uh, I guess, like stress testing or how did you kind of prove the design out in the real world before you started selling them? Because I don't imagine with the resources you had, you had an engineer on staff, or or did you? No, no. I mean, my background is in construction. I went to school. I was a I have a you know undergraduate uh, BS in civil engineering with a structures track. You know, so I sort of had that educational background, and then I got into you know I worked with a general contractor and got an MS in construction management. So kind of building things, I've been around for quite a while at that point. You know. Um, but it's really going out and testing the components. So, you know, getting into rainstorms, getting into blizzards, getting into sandstorms, seeing what things are not working, you know, is, uh, is the bracket starting to wiggle too much? Is there too much flapping? Are the, because originally we weren't using tension rods, for example, on the rain or the rain fly or the window awnings. They were just fixed aluminum bent poles, but because there was no tension on the fabric, when you'd get any wind, it would just flap around quite a bit, you know? So just getting out there and using the product is the best way to figure out what needs to be done to improve the, the So were you tent. intentionally looking for like the worst possible weather and conditions you could find to test this and go camp in it? <laughs> I mean, I, I certainly was, my wife not so much. She uh, <laughs> prefers fair weather camping. So oftentimes it would be me and the guys. We'd uh, do our winter camping trips every year, and we'd go up to Twain Hart and up into the Sierras. And uh, yeah, we've been in some some crazy stuff. We were in a sandstorm down in Death Valley, which we actually got a pretty good video of on our website. Where I, mean, I thought the car was going to blow over, but we sat in that thing for 12 hours in the tent, and uh, it was fine. Jeez, know? I hope you brought some board games or or beer. Yeah, yeah. Bit of a ladder. Yeah, I guess you wouldn't want to drink too much if you were stuck in a tent for twelve hours, though. You couldn't get out. I know. I know. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so then, from like the early versions, you know, the first model that you guys came out with, how did you start marking that? How did you get the word out about this? You know, fairly new concept for the U.S. market. Um, we did. Uh, <laughs> a lot of kind of more guerrilla style uh, with no real marketing funds. Um, you know, we would 
go on to Craigslist, for example, and we would post on Craigslist in the different cities. Um, we don't do that anymore. I, it just doesn't, I don't know if it would even work anymore, but that, that's what we did. We got on Craigslist. We, got, we did dabble with Google AdWords, but uh, again, we didn't have a lot of money. Fortunately, there was nobody really competing for keywords at that point, especially in this space, because there's no other rooftop tent manufacturers here in the U.S. Um, you know, eBay, we did the eBay stuff, and, you know, got, we got a website out there, and then we got onto forums. So that was our big kind of thing. We went to, you know, Expedition Portal, because our the roots of rooftop tenting is really overlanding, and that's, so that community, we wanted to kind of get in front of them. And so we got in front of them, we started engaging on the forums, we started going to the, you know, the events that they did, uh, even on a local level, like there's a Santa Cruz four-wheel drive club. So we started talking with them, sponsoring their uh, events over in Hollister Hills. Um, and, you know, on the, on the other side of that, my wife and I really like going to festivals. So we started going to music festivals as vendors because not only do you get great, because you, you camp in your vendor booth, and our vendor booth is a tent. So we just sat in front of like, you know, we went to Sierra Nevada World Music Festival. And we got positioned right in front of stage two. And we're sitting there underneath the redwoods listening to reggae and other, you know, great world music and, you know, in the shade of our tapui. So it was great. That's awesome. So how has that marketing strategy evolved over the years? You know, you got, has it been in business for nine years now, right? Yeah, uh, eight, I guess. Eight. Okay. Yeah, as tapui, yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, uh, we have more resources. We do things a little bit more, I mean, I wouldn't say by the book, but I mean, more conventionally, you know, we started print advertising. Um, we started engaging with, you know, SEOs and these things that are way over my head. I mean, I've got an engineering background and I, um, you know, we started to get organized instead of sort of a smattering of this and a little bit of that. And, oh yeah, that sounds like a great event. Let's go. And, um, so it, and I don't think we're there yet, to be honest with you. I mean, it's every year things change a little bit. We've only just recently brought on our first marketing manager, and uh, she joined us, you know, like a month ago. And this is her background, so she's going to start putting together all the pieces, the fragmented pieces of our marketing strategy, if you will, you know. All right. So then, uh, from a sales growth side, you said when you first started out, you're selling six or seven a month. What what kind of volume are you guys doing now? How many units per month? Uh, we do hundreds a month now, and that's on our customer direct side. That doesn't include you know sales to REI or Backcountry or some of the you know Cabela's and Bassport Coast. Right. So it's it's you know quick. I mean, it was you know we we sold seven in January of 2011, and then 23, and then in February, and then it was like you know, 36. And we're like, wow, we sold 36. I mean, that was a huge month for us. We sold 36 cents. And it was interesting because at that point, it gave us uh, such a big runway for ordering more product and figuring out the next thing because we, you know, when we got down to 25 tents in our storage container, we we're like, okay, let's place another order. It took about six to eight weeks to get more tents. And we only had two SKUs, you know, and fast forward and we've got, you know, probably almost 20 different SKUs in just tent variations plus, you know, a laundry list of accessories from awnings to sheets to, you know, gear bags, et cetera. And, and we're growing, you know, about 60% a year. So I have no idea. I mean, you want to predict a month out or two months out, but it's, it's pretty difficult to do sometimes. 
Yeah. What I got a couple of questions about sales, and so in case I forget to ask later, I want to talk about seasonality of the sales cycle for you guys. But um, first, you know, for the growth, like at what point did you get somebody like REI or Backcountry.com to pick you up? Because that seems like a, a pretty big let's go celebrate moment. Yeah, certainly, and I think it's um, you know a lot of our. The foundational principles were kind of pioneering the category here in the U.S. <clears throat> and, you know, in doing so, you know, not only when we kind of started with the roots and overlanding and, and engaging with the, you know, exhibition portal on that kind of crowd, but also when we went into the outdoor retail crowd, you know, or sorry, the outdoor recreation crowd. And I think we spoke better to them because my wife and I are, you know, we love to surf, snowboard, you know, hike, you know, all those things, kayak. And, and it felt like we were kind of pulling ourselves into events like that, whether it was triathlons or you know, going up to the mountains and things like that. So what we did was we got went to outdoor retail. We were the first rooftop tent company to show up there. And people kind of came over and were like, wow, what is this? You know, I've never seen anything like this. So what year was that? Um, it was in first go. Uh, let's see. That was 2015, I think. Oh, wow. So, so you guys just started ago. going to that show. Yeah, it's only been about, this will be our third year this summer. So, so yeah, it was, uh, and we were, you know, the first rooftop tent company there, and people didn't know anything about it. And I think, to a, a greater extent, most of the outdoor rec uh, crowd doesn't know about this. I mean, even today, uh, even though we're growing in popularity, yes, we're on REI, yes, we're on backcountry. But, I mean, I don't know what the figure is, but I'd say 75% of the outdoor rec crowd doesn't even know that this is a camping option yet or they just haven't come across it so um but yeah but by being there um we kind of you know put our flag in the ground and we said hey we're you know we're rooftop tents and this is going to be this is going to change your world if you're going to a bike race or if you're going you know just up the coast to go paddle boarding or surfing for the weekend and that that story was very compelling to the backcountry and rei the reis of the world and they kind of came and looked around and asked a lot of questions and left with sort of, hmm, this might be something we need to look at. And a couple months later, they called us back. And, and actually with REI, it was, uh, it was great. They, they came back and they said, hey, we want to do a test with you guys and we'll take, I don't know, two or three of your SKUs and we'll take, I don't know, 15 or 20 of them and we'll just put them online. And so we worked with them on the onboarding and got them a couple pictures and they loaded them on their website. And before they even left our warehouse door, they were sold out. And they called wow. us back the next day and said, hey, uh, this is, uh, you know, we, we need more tents. So we sent them some more tents and they sold out pretty quickly as well. And they said, okay, guys, the test is over. We need <laughs> a lot of tents. We need all your SKUs. And so it's sort of accelerated from there. And, and that's great. And they've been great to work with, you know, in sort of navigating this new pioneering category. So... So when they first did that test, was was it kind of a consignment type basis where they'll see if it sells, and if so, you guys will ship for them, or were they planning on inventorying it at their own facility right off the bat? Yeah, no, it was state inventory. It, it wasn't a consignment based. I mean, they they believed that um, they would sell. They just didn't anticipate them to sell that quickly or to be that popular. All right. How was it a fairly easy negotiation from when you guys first started talking to them at Outdoor Retailer to get them to agree to carry it, or did it drag on, like negotiates and drag on? Uh, it wasn't really a negotiation, I wouldn't say. Uh, they were interested and, um, you know, OR is in August, so 
you're kind of coming to the end of the camping season. So it was really a, you know, following year kind of startup. So we, you know, it took, I think in September, they kind of said, okay, we're going to start the onboarding process. And there's a whole bunch of, you know, contracts and vendor stuff that we need to fill out. So that took us the better part of the last quarter of the year. So it was really for a March launch. Um, so it wasn't, wasn't terribly tricky, I don't think. Um, and backcountry, it was sort of the same way. I mean, I think they saw the, the growing trend with rooftop tents. Yeah, and then now you're in Cabela's and I think one other big chain, right? Uh, Bass Pro, um, and you know, there's some other ones, Moose Jaw, um, Shields, things like that. So there's a, there's a few other outdoor specialty stores. Um, you know, Bass Pro and, and Cabela's are more kind of hook and bullet crowd. Um, Bass Pro, strangely enough, was one of the first big box stores to pick us up, and that was back in 2013. Oh. Um, and I, and they didn't—they only, they, you know, they brought us online only, and um, you know that's that's been fine. But uh, it was that was sort of—I don't know—I don't know how that happened. <laughs> Just uh, my sister actually had a contact over there and said, "Hey, check out my brother's company. This is this is something that's going to be great." And conversation went from there. Nice, you know. And then the other ones, though, since REI, did uh, did the relationship and being in REI kind of get these other retailers to reach out to you guys, or were you still pushing it on your own? Um, yeah, uh, we, we do. And so the breakdown is is that, like, REI, I think, brings a lot of credibility to the category because, it, you know, if REI is stocking a product, I mean, it's full of, you know, whether it's at the store level or, you know, on a national level, it's outdoor enthusiasts, and they know their gear – and they know it works, and they, they know the best brands out there. So when REI picked us up, it, it lent a lot of credibility to, you know, not only our brand, but the category, that this was something that was real and people should take a closer look at. Um, so I think that was, you know, both from the customer standpoint, but also from other retailers. And so that bled into more like the kind of specialty shops. I mean, I think, you know, lots of small towns or cities, you know, have these little local specialty shops that sell stuff that, um, is outdoor related, but it's more like, you know, uh, maybe a hybrid between automotive and outdoor, that kind of stuff, you know? So that's, that's sort of the growing trend that I think REI helps with. Yeah, no, that's an important point. I mean, I agree hundred percent, you know, when you get a big established player, whatever the relationship is from, you know, you to them is it, it adds that level of credibility. It kind of like, um, it's, a, it's like an implied endorsement, basically. So right, right. Helps a lot. Um, oh, I had a question, and now it's escaping me. The um, Oh, for pricing and margins then. So as you grow, like when you started getting into retail outlets, when you first started this and you were selling direct-to-consumer only, had you already planned in for retail or distribution margins? Or was that kind of like something you had to figure out once you started getting into retail chains? Well, yeah, that's something we're still figuring out. <laughs> uh, it's uh, <laughs> I didn't uh, anticipate that being as tricky as it was. Um, certainly, yeah, when we first started out, I mean, our first year we were 90% consumer direct. Um, obviously, the margins on consumer direct are great, and it, you know, fortunately it provided us the capital that we needed to grow. So that 90%, then we were able to, you know, double up on inventory the next year, and then it shifted to more like 75%. And then it was like 60 and now we're looking like, wow, now it's 75%, uh, you know, wholesale and 25% consumer direct and it uh, changes things. So 
So, you know, luckily, I think it's happening at a very kind of throttled uh, pace so that it's allowing us to manage these these greater volumes with a very efficient uh, and organized overhead unit, if you will. You know, so our organization here in Santa Cruz, um, you know, we've got maybe 12 people and we can now manage a lot more of the retail side than we would if we were just three or four people. And hopefully that, that set margin won't have to expand too much as we continue to bring on retailers. Right. So as your production goes up, I imagine you're getting some efficiencies of scale. Are you still working with the same manufacturing partner that you started with? Um, we actually moved around a little bit. Um, you know, even from when I was, when we were talking earlier, we don't work with that manufacturer anymore at all. Um, and we've learned some important lessons as we grew from, you know, 2010, 11, 12, 13. I think we started with one of our current manufacturers in, I'm kind of guessing, but it was around 2014. Um, we've since, we're onboarding another one right now simply for, you know, scale because we need more capacity. And um, so that's happening right now. And we've actually turned another one off because their quality started suffering. Hmm. And I, I don't know why that was, but we kept pounding them. I mean, I was over there two or three times, things weren't changing. And so we had to phase out and, and go with somebody who was gonna take what we were doing a little more seriously. Um, so, you know, and we also are manufacturing now here in the US, uh, which is pretty incredible for our new white lightning tent. Cool. So what were some of the lessons you guys learned over those first four years of producing when you kept moving from manufacturer to manufacturer? Um, I think that you, you have to, you have to get some eyes on the ground because I think you're, there's lots of sound bites. People will tell you what they think you want to hear. Um, you know, we, we, we've had people lie to us. We've, you know, had prices start to slip you know, upwards and upwards and upwards. And, you know, you're not making any changes and you're wondering why and their cost of materials is kind of quoted, but uh, it's just this, it, it doesn't feel like a partnership that, hey, we're gonna grow together and be successful together. It's like, hey, you're my, you know, revenue stream right now and I'm gonna get as much as I can out of this revenue stream until the next one comes around. And when you start to get involved in those two relationships, it just doesn't work. You know? Right. So do you guys have a, a person over there frequently or full-time, or do you use a manufacturing agent to, on your behalf? Uh, we, we've been over quite a bit. Um, I mean, I was over as uh, early as last November um, for several weeks um, trying to onboard this new manufacturer. But, um, yeah, so we go over quite a bit ourselves, either myself or the operations or your production control manager. So one of those guys will go over. We also do have somebody on the ground over there that, um, overseas goes, you know, any manufacturer you would have, um, even accessories, stuff like that, that we would produce over there. So, and is that a, an actual employee of yours or is it a, like a contract agent? Uh, he's a contract agent, the guy who we have over there that, um, you know, will help us when we're not around. Yeah. How'd you find him? Uh, you know, I don't remember the name of the site. We posted a job listing and he, responded it was on a it was over in there in that area so you know we said hey we need somebody to basically be a qc person to show up every time containers or assemblies happening and uh inspect you know this list of stuff sign off on it we want a you know qc card signed off on and um so we yeah we had a job posting he responded and um you know it was even a learning curve 
with him because he rooftop tents. He didn't know anything about rooftop tents. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his he had done a lot of quality control, production control for bigger companies in, you know, like the plumbing industry and, you know, that kind of thing. But this was all new. So, that I mean, again, it just it, you got to go through the paces. Right. Yeah. Well, I asked, like, how you found it because I think there's a lot of people that have learned the same lessons you guys learned sometimes in much harder, harder ways that, you know, if you're not constantly overseeing this foreign manufacturing, there's a good chance they're going to cut corners or something's going to go wrong and it's not going to get picked up. And so it's, you know, in my mind, it's like, well, you're trusting this other person over there who's might be telling you the same story that he's telling that the manufacturers are telling you. Right. So it's like, how do you vet that person remotely? Like how did you guys figure out? Well, (laughs) we went over there. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, I mean, we've learned some, some lessons even with him. I mean, not only just the growing pains of him becoming familiar with the product, but also the trust. And, you know, there, I mean, you know, I won't go into details. We had a come to Jesus moment with him <laughs> where it was like, you know, w- you know, we exposed some you know, additional profit that he was sort of sucking from uh, our, our margins. And that wasn't, uh, that wasn't appropriate. You right. know? Now, some people might have been like, hey, that's it. You're gone. We need to find somebody else. You lied to us. But uh, we took a different approach because we needed somebody there. And it took such a long time to get him to understand the product and you know the quality that we expected so we sort of approached him like this and said you know what do we need to do to remove the the need to to lie or to you know try to draw additional profit from us i mean you tell us what it is that there's not going to be any ambiguity as far as our relationship and where this is going so is he just getting kickbacks or something uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to, it was, it was, it was sort of, um, there was a, a time when we were manufacturing in two places that we're not right now. And one of the places um, we were going to go visit. And as we got, we were going to go visit with him. And as we were getting closer to go visit with him, it turned out that that place didn't exist. And the, the name of the company and the contacts and the unit costs and everything we were going, as we sort of started peeling back uh, the onion there, we found out that he had actually shifted it to a new location. And I think in an attempt to drive down to a lower unit cost and keep the difference. Right? It's crazy. It is. It is crazy. And and I, I sort of reluctantly tell you that because most people would say, wow, why would you keep doing business with somebody who would do that? And um, again, I, I think that we needed to figure out why he felt the need to do that and if there was a way to overcome that. And, you know, that, that was now three year more years ago and we've had a very solid relationship since and i think that we you know we've seen him we've gone over and visited him i mean i've had dinner in his house i know his wife i know his uh, he has a a baby girl and um you know i I think that's beyond us and you know so i do think i made the right decision because i think if we would have walked away uh we would have been struggling now we have to find somebody else and when you're faced with you know, 50, 60% growth at home and you're always out of stock, that's not the place you want to be. So when you're kind of in a hard position like that, you make uh, maybe different decisions. Yeah. No, it's, I don't imagine that was an easy decision, but like you said, it seems like it was the right one. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to kind of give people a second chance. I imagine when you had that come to Jesus discussion with him that he was, he showed the right kind of remorse otherwise. 
<laughs> you probably wouldn't have yeah, made the same absolutely. call. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I said, I, I think my gut feeling is most people are pretty good. Sometimes they just make stupid decisions and, you know, anyway, the, um, from a manufacturing side, I want to go back to the materials a little bit. When you guys are, you know, when you were starting to look at the kind of tents you want to do, you know, rain flies or the, the materials for the, the soft fabric shell and all that, were you going to the manufacturer and saying, Hey, this is what we want it to, this is what we want to achieve. What do you have? Or were you guys sourcing the material yourself and then saying, here's the material I want you to use. How did you kind of piece it all together? Um, we've done a bit of both. Um, I mean, I think the, the tents that we originally brought in, um, we kind of mimicked that material because there were obvious reasons that they used that as well as the other tent manufacturers that we saw in um, Australia or South Africa. I mean, it's basically it's a poly cotton or a polyester cotton blend. Um, in a way, it's sort of a modern day canvas uh, in that it's breathable but waterproof, you know. So that we, we didn't want to try to reinvent that. Now, only recently we decided, wait a second, let's try a different one. And we spec this more, uh, you know, lightweight ripstop nylon. And that's what you see on our Baja series, uh, the lightweight canopies that are more reflective of what you see in mountaineering tents, you know, or, or ground tents. Right. But um, what, when you when you actually get into a rooftop tent and you're, you know, because weight isn't as much of a concern, uh, it's nice to have a heavier fabric because it protects you better from the wind. It doesn't flap as much, uh, and it's just it's just solid. You know, it, it feels like it's gonna, you know, last for years, you know, abrasive wise, and you know just wear and tear so yeah the and the baja series that's a relatively new one for you guys you introduced that last summer right we did yeah we introduced that last summer and um you know it was we, we introduced that as a way to soft start our patent pending which is now patented zipper again because we wanted to reinvent the distribution side of rooftop tents because of the you know they are bulky they're bulky, and one of our biggest challenges is getting these smaller specialized stores to figure out how to um, store these things. I mean, they, I mean, they don't have a lot of warehouse space, and you know, these things are 56 inches by 48 by 12. I mean, they're big boxes. So, when we uh, conceived of the zipper gimp idea, which was essentially how the canopy is attached to the base, um, we said, okay, this could work because then a, manuf- or a retailer could stock three or five or seven bases and 30 canopies and those 30 canopies are you know a little bit bigger than a shoebox, you know and we can ship over these canopies almost you know overnight them fedex if they knew they had a customer that needed a different color or a different weight you know uh, that's smart, so yeah. uh yeah that was sort of the the reason we kind of launched it we limited it to the baja series now that patented zipper gimp which we just received the patent on in um i think it was like february this year is now in all of our tents. So if you buy any tent, even our heavier canvas tents or our poly cotton tents, the ruggedized tents, they all have the zipper gimp. And um, I don't think a lot of people really understand what that is, but essentially uh, a zipper is married to its mate. So when you manufacture a zipper, you can't unzip one half of it and then go zip it to the same you know, size zipper and same length zipper and expect it to work. Uh, it'll zip, but one side will always extend greater than the other by sometimes, especially when you go on the, the length of uh, the base of rooftop tent by, you know, a foot or more. Hmm. So it made that canopies weren't, that means that zippers weren't interchangeable. So this, the use of the type of zipper that we're using on the zipper gem 
allows it to always be exactly the same length. And you can have a spare canopy, a uh, lightweight one, a mesh one, um, and just have the single you know, base zipper and zip on any other canopy, and it'll always work. How did you guys develop that zipper technology, or did you, you found it? We found it. Essentially, we found it and integrated into our tents um, with the use of the what used to be a bolt cord that was sewn directly to the tent is now sewn to this specialized zipper. Huh. That's really cool. Yeah, when I, I first heard about that, I thought it was mainly just to kind of let people change their tent from season to season. But the, the retail distribution side of it makes a, a ton of sense. Right, right. So Nice. The um, future product development. So you guys have a pretty robust line of rooftop tents now. And you know, the only competitor I know of that's doing one is Yakima. And theirs is still really new. But you mentioned that there are some others. What... Uh, well, first of all, who are the others, if you don't mind saying? For, yeah. for the U.S. <laughs> for the U.S. market. There's there's a bunch. There's like uh, I think it's called Tough Stuff, um, Bigfoot, Rooftop Tents. Uh, there was one that was called Car Top Camper, but I don't know that they're still in business. Um, but uh, and, and there's more and more. There's one that Odin Designs. I think that just popped up out of Colorado. Uh, and, and I'll tell you that, you know, they'll probably come, there's probably more than, than I even know of, you know, because I'm not constantly paying attention. But I think that the category is flourishing right now. The barriers to entry are pretty small. And, you know, we had the, the fortune and the runway to get out ahead of a lot of people as being, you know, the first, probably the first domestic one. Um, and it provides us a lot of credibility. We have history, we have experience in the space. We've got a you know a whole bunch of spare parts. You know we've almost experienced everything one could experience in rooftop tent and, and have an answer to somebody because we've just interact with our customers a lot. Um, but again, because the barriers of entry are are so small, that's why we started reaching out in, in the product development side and seeing you know how can we start to do stuff that's unique. Uh, and that's when we launched the ruggedized tent. That was our first sort of like hey nobody's doing anything in, in it's kind of beefier and heavier duty. And we launched the Ruggedized series. And then we launched the Sky series, which was, you know, the Sky panels and all our tents. Um, and then the Baja series with the patented zipper gym. So we're starting to sort of figure out how can we um, carve out our own space, you know, that people can't just uh, copy and repeat. Right, cool. So then are you looking beyond the rooftop tent? And I, and I asked mainly because I was just out at another, at a bike brand and one of their employees cars was a sprinter with a um like an integrated camper top thing that pops up out of the top and i'd never seen one on a sprinter and now my mind is just like daydreaming constantly about having a sprinter with this thing uh you know it seems like a natural progression for you guys or even ground tents seem but is that any of that of interest or are you just going to keep focusing on the car top oh no absolutely i mean i think when we started our you know our name was tapui tents and we formed this small little company, I think online, it was Tapui Tent LLC. And when we converted um, in 2015 to Tapui Outdoors Incorporated, so that's actually the name of our kind of the company entity uh, now, we did Tapui Outdoors Incorporated for a reason. We, you can see there's no tents in there because we realized that there's a lot, there's an opportunity for specialized camping equipment. There, there's a market for it. We've got lots of great ideas. We've got a, a whiteboard in our office that has no less than 
you know, 60 or 70 uh, ideas that when we get the time and the bandwidth, we're going to start to, you know, work on and hopefully launch in the, in the years to come. And I think it'll always be somewhere in the specialized. I mean, if we do a ground tent, it'll be different for a reason. It'll solve a very unique problem or a specialized, you know, serve a very specialized niche in the, in the community, you know? Right. So when you have a whiteboard with 60 or more ideas on it, how do you narrow that down? Like, what are you looking at when you're pro and conning all these ideas to know which ones to move forward with next? Um, well, there's low hanging fruit, which means uh, the product development cycle is just, uh, it's, it's less, it's, it's easier to get the materials. It's easier to do the, you know, the testing and the R and D on it. So, um, you know, that kind of stuff we'll launch into. And some of that stuff, I would say, not all the stuff on that list is like sheet sets, customized fitted sheet sets. That was on the list. Now, that's not particularly revolutionary, but, um, you know, these mattresses are unique size and they have cutouts for the hinge. And I tell you, we sell more sheets than we do tents almost, you know, because people from, you know, our competitors are buying our sheets because they're, you know, super comfortable and they fit their tent. And, you know, so it's, like little things like that, but um, we have some more specialized things that, you know, we're going to try to patent and we're going to try to launch. So, cool. Do you feel like the, some of the small low hanging fruit ones that, because they're easy? It's kind of like I feel like when I'm sitting here and I know I have a big project to do, I do all the little crap like check email first. Do you think? Do you get into a <laughs> rut where you're like, oh, this one's easy, let's just do this, and then oh, and this one's easy, and then and the big projects get put off, or do you have like one team focused on the big stuff and another team focused on the little stuff? Oh, I think it's definitely uh, the prior. I mean, to an extent, there's this project we call it Project Project uh, Green Sparrow, and I have been working on that since I mean probably 2014, and. Uh, We've got lots of prototypes of it. It's hard. It's a really hard nut to crack. Um, but when it's done, uh, and so I, I mean, I, I kind of do it at stints because sometimes you have to let a, a seed bake for a while. So we, we know the different challenges. We've worked some of them out. And then you let it sit for two months. And then all of a sudden you're driving down the highway. And like, ah, there it is. That's how we can fix this or do this little component. So I don't think you just forcefully push things through. I think um, just letting them kind of, develop at their own cycle is part of it, you know, but, but certainly, um, yeah, we do like to keep momentum. So we do try to bang out the easier, uh, low hanging fruit, you know, as, as often as we can. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned that you've been working on this project. What is your role in the company now? Uh, I mean, I still, um, you know, I, I call myself the general manager because I sort of dabble, uh, oversee, you know, the sales, marketing, operations, you know, product development. Um, but we've got a pretty good team, so I don't have to do as much day-to-day -day operational activity as I used to. So I can, you know, I still kind of steer the strategic direction of the company and, and what our next, you know, what we're going to do next. Do we have enough money? You know, are we uh, treating our customers right? Um, I like to plan the events, like Tapui Fest coming up this, all. I mean, that's great. I mean, I get to go and find the musicians and the bands and, you know, do all that fun stuff. So, um, nice. what we was just took the media up to Lost Coast, which was fun. Cool. What was the first major kind of task that you had to delegate to somebody else? Uh, the first thing that or we... the first big uh, responsibility? That, that operational side of it. Because the day-to-day, -day, um, I mean, I used to 
honestly, when we first started, the 800 number used to ring on my cell phone. So, and I would, and I would have to like walk out into a hall or go into my phone, into my car and take a call. I mean, I used to take credit card numbers as I was walking or while I was driving down the road, you know, with a headset in and a pen in one hand. So, and I, you know, get home at night to answer all the sales emails, you know, they'd sit there and just pile up during the day. And then I'd sit there for hours responding to every single one and uh, getting rid of that uh, component, bringing on some people to sort of help with that, answer the phones and um, help with customer needs is the first thing and probably the thing that allowed me to focus on other areas that really allowed us to grow. Yeah, it's, I imagine it wasn't a hard decision to say you needed to delegate that, but was it hard to let go of that control? Uh, certainly, and, and I still, um, you know, listen. I mean, the door to my office is open a lot of the times. I'm just sitting here and I can hear how they're talking to customers and if there's an issue, if there's a warranty problem, if the tent got damaged in shipping, I'll jump up and walk in there and say, hey, you know, I know this guy's upset here. Let's let's figure it out this way. Let, like, you know. So I'll, I'll definitely still get involved, and I think uh, that's very helpful. And I'll still scan the sales emails here and there and see how people are responding. And, and just kind of keep your thumb on the pulse because I think when you don't, when you really back away, then it can sort of transform into something else that you're not even familiar with. And by the time you get back, you know, it might be too hard to change the tone, you know? Right. Did you kind of come up with a... I hate to say a script, but sort of lay out like, here's what I need to do. Or was it just sort of had that person shadow you? Like, how did you get somebody else up to speed to handle, you know, these fairly intimate things like dealing directly with the customers in your stead? Um, I'd say it's probably a little bit, of, probably shadowing more than anything. I mean, we had a throttled growth, so it wasn't, I mean, we, I could never do now what I was able to do then because the phones ring all day long. There's just too much volume. But at that stage, it was much smaller. So I could kind of oversee, you know, one person sort of answering the phones and see how they're responding and sit next to them. And, and you know, they spent a, a year with us and then they were able to train the next person. And it was a, a smaller group, you know. I mean, when it's four or five people, it's uh, much different. Yeah. Have you guys grown 100% on revenues? Yes. Yeah, we haven't taken any uh, private investment or or private equity, I should say. Is that by design or just no, no one's approached uh, yeah. you or like why? No, I just, I think, I mean, it's typically the last thing you want to do, right? Unless, you know, you, you want to, because as soon as you start doing that, you're diluting the company, right? So I, is it in our future? You know, probably it could be. It depends on how fast uh, and how far we want to reach, you know? Um, if we just want to continue with this nice throttle of growth and, and, you know, I think we can do it. You know, we've, I've supported, you know, when we, we have a line of credit with the bank, so we've been able to support, you know, the kind of cycles, the cash flow cycles. Uh, certainly, I'm always nervous December, January, and February, but by March, we're all having a good time again. You know, the <laughs> cash cycle comes back up, so. All right. <laughs> the, uh, so I'm kind of bouncing around here just because I've got a lot of little random questions, but like, so, the only other competitor I mentioned that I was aware of was Yakima and because, you know, I've run bikerumor.com, so pretty in tune with what's going on in the cycling space and Yakima is a huge player in the bicycle rack uh, category. So when they launched their rooftop tent, it was, it's priced pretty aggressively. It's like 1399 um, MSRP, mm -hmm. which I think is a lot less than 
the MSRP on most of your models. Is that how do you guys deal with something like that? Because it's not like they're a total upstart. Like Yakima is a well-known brand, generally pretty respected from what I can tell. Oh yeah, they have a they have a lot of horsepower. It's uh, you know when they actually called us. Uh, I think it was June of last year, and and because we were selling a lot of their racks with rooftop tents because they go together very well. So respectfully, they called us and just said, "Hey, we wanted to give you the heads up. We're we're launching a rooftop tent at OR." Um, and there, we knew those guys. They were nice. There's no issue. We're like oh, okay, but um, after we hung up the phone, there was a stunned silence for you know. Uh, a good uh, a few minutes there, and we kind of looked around and said, huh, what's that going to mean? But <laughs> I think we also kind of thought, well, the silver lining is that they're going to, they have a lot of marketing horsepower, and they're going to bring a lot of credibility to the category. They're going to get out there, and people are going to know that this is uh, an option, you know, in a way that we just can't. We just, they would, they, we just don't have that, that kind of resource right now. Um, so we thought, you know, let's just see how this goes, like, and, and and it could be a good thing in the long run. So, um, and I, I mean, I knew they did go to OR, and I don't want to say it's in a direct response, but we also coincidentally launched uh, our Baja series, which, if you look at the price points of the Baja series with the mountaineering canopy, it's very similar, you know, and it has the interchangeable zipper again, you know, so you can switch out canopies or, you know, for warranty issues or if you damage it or something in the future. So, you know, we have to figure out how to play, you know, our game with the resources we have. Um, I think Yakima is a very, you know, well-respected brand, and I've seen their tent, and it looks great. So I don't know how it performs or anything like that. I haven't used one, but uh, we'll see how it goes for them. All right. So when you did the the zipper game patent, is it a patent on that specific zipper or using that zipper? Or is it a patent on the interchangeable design? Like how, what I'm kind of getting at is how broad is that? Does that protect you guys from anybody else doing a kind of a modular tent design for a rooftop? In that manner, yes. Yeah, okay. interchangeable with the zipper game. Now, I'm not a patent lawyer. I, you know, that stuff is beyond me. But I think, you know, the that's what I understand it to be. Right. So it's somewhat robust patent. I mean, somebody would have a hard time right. creating another modular system. Sounds like. Right, right, right. No, that's good. Okay, I, I got one kind of like just product geek question because I've, I've always been really curious. So like this is a thing that's going on a product that you don't make, the car, and you guys have no control over the manufacturer of that car or its roof racks or third-party roof racks. How, how hard was it to design something that relied on the structural integrity of something you had no control over? Uh yeah, it's challenging, um, certainly because, you know, we live in the U.S., it's a pretty litigious society, you just don't know what people are going to do and then blame you for. Um, so we always put it back on, on the customer and we say, listen, you know, we have seen people use these on these cars before. We're not going to, you know, certify, we're not going to verify, or, you know, not going to give you any guarantees, but if you do your homework on the rack down, then we'll provide you the tent. And it kind of has to be that way because there's so many different cars and the racks change all the time, you know, whether they're integrated racks or aftermarket racks. So at some stage, the consumer needs to take that responsibility on themselves. And yes, there are racks out there and there are vehicles that are more than adequate to support rooftop tents, but there are probably plenty of racks that are not. And we're not going to, 
you know, take on the liability of inspecting everybody's rack or everybody's car. So we just have to communicate that very clearly, I think, that they need to figure that out. Because it would be the same with a with a bike rack, right? If you tried to load four mountain bikes up on top of a, a plastic crossbar, you know, that thing could crack and all those bikes could come flying off while you're doing 70 down I-5, you know? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious. So from a general standpoint, somebody wants to start a consumer product uh, in this kind of outdoor adventure space or any space, what, what's maybe one or two pieces of advice you'd give them and one or two of the biggest challenges you guys have overcome and how'd you do it? Um, well, I mean, I, I think uh, the one thing is as long as you're having fun, uh, it never feels like work. And, you know, there have definitely been times when it wasn't fun and it felt way too much like work. But I think most of the time, the majority of the time, uh, working here at Tapui from, you know, scratch back in 2010 up to where we are now, it's mostly fun. I mean, we have a lot of fun. We work with fun people. We work in a fun space, um, outdoor rec, overlanding. It's all adventure and recreation just by nature. So, you know, if you can approach whatever you're doing and say, hey, you know, I'm going to always make sure that I'm having fun or it's not worth doing, then it sort of provides a foundation to kind of go back to, you know, when things get tough. Um, the only other thing I would say is, you know, companies are built with many hands. So it's we've got a lot of great people here and you can't do it alone. And you need to make sure that you're bringing in people, whether it's you know, employees are just relationships with other brands are, you know, folks in the community. That's what uh, I think really helps you build a, a good brand and a good company. Awesome. I love it. What a, maybe one of the biggest challenges you guys have faced other than some of those manufacturing issues we talked about? Um, I think trying to, uh, we're, we're maturing. You know, we were a small startup and we just didn't have the resources. Um, I, I just mean, you know, the structural resources that typical companies would have. So, you know, even, you know, I look over at the employees and we don't, you know, we're trying to offer them as many benefits as we can as we continue to grow, but we're still very small. This is still very much a startup, which is very fun uh, and provides that kind of nimble, quick response, but uh, it's still a startup. You know, we're stripped of a lot of the resources and the benefits that a bigger company might have. So, you know, that that's a challenge, I think, and trying to figure out how to overcome that challenge by, which is slowly happening, but by implementing, you know, proper procedures. I mean, you know, whether it's onboarding new employees instead of just, yeah, um, we get paid every other Friday, so that's it. You know, like giving people a little bit more insight into what's going on and having a marketing department and a sales team and stuff like that. So as that structure start, starts to fall into place, I think uh, it'll be easier for us to continue to grow. Right on. And as long as when the surf's good, everybody gets the day off, right? Well, that is the truth. We are about a half mile from the surf. So. Yeah, I've heard that's a, a, <laughs> that, a notorious problem for Santa Cruz employers. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. I mean, we kind of have a flexible start time here. So nice. if the surf is good, you don't really expect to see anybody before 10. It's <laughs> awesome. Right on, Evan, man. Thank you so much for your time. Loved hearing your story. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Yep, see you around. Take care. A couple of things stood out for me in this conversation. 
In a category with low barriers to entry, creating a unique product with distinct advantages is key to remaining at the top. Tapui's modular zipper gimp system and expansive accessories collection provides the customers with best-in-class details that make it harder for the competition to keep up. Another way this differentiation helps is by making the retailers' lives easier. Fewer things to stock without limiting customer choice is always good, but especially so when you're dealing with big, heavy, and expensive items. Being first to market didn't hurt either, and it's this combination that's helped them land REI and other major retailers, which also makes it harder for the competition to gain traction. There's a few more points I've thrown into the show notes, which also have timestamps of the main topics we've discussed and some killer photos of Tapui's tents in action. Fair warning though, once you see them, you're gonna want one. Hey, thanks for listening. If you're tuning in while you're driving, the next time you're sitting still with your phone or your computer, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm at The Build Cycle on all three, and you'll find bonus content and general inspiration from my own adventures, business and otherwise. Until next time, tell a friend about this podcast and keep building.